The phrase decoupling is used pretty frequently in the context of the U.S.-China tech relationship, but what precisely does it mean? Just how coupled are the United States and China's tech ecosystems, and how is that relationship changing? And what does the future hold for those interconnections? This week, we talk with John Bateman, a fellow in the Cyber Policy Initiative of the Technology and International Affairs Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also the author of a new report on U.S.-China technological decoupling. So, from the U.S.-China Business Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Ian Hutchinson, and this is the China Business Review Podcast. John Bateman is a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he recently released an in-depth report that looks at the ways and places that the United States and China's tech ecosystems are intermeshed, and what U.S. policy should look like on that front. This, of course, has massive significance for U.S. companies operating in China, especially those in high-tech manufacturing or other tech-intensive industries. But before digging into the policy aspects to ground the discussion, I I wanted to know what the current state of the U.S.-China tech sphere looks like in terms of how coupled it is. In other words, what's the baseline from which decoupling is taking place? Uh, Well, first of all, Ian, I think that's the exact right place to start uh, because it's important to recognize that the U.S. and China have never been fully 100% technologically coupled. Um, And you can think of a ton of examples of this. Um, China has long maintained a lot of market access restrictions on U.S. technology going into China. Um, These are longstanding concerns about trade restrictions, discriminatory regulation, licensing practices. Um, So these are all inhibitors on the technology relationship. But you could also point to something like the Great Firewall, which has existed for 10 to 20 years now. And essentially decoupled at the content of the layer layer of the internet. Um, so which websites you can access, which apps you can use. Um, and then on the other hand, the United States has longstanding restrictions in many areas as well, like export controls on dual use or military oriented items like supercomputers. Um, that said, we all know that the United States and China had gone through decades of economic integration And that led us to a point of profound technological interdependence. Um, So you could break this down into a number of different ways. Uh, One would be thinking about uh, finished technology products. So thinking about the U.S. point of view here, we rely on China as a manufacturing hub for things like our iPhones. Um, We also rely on China to sell us things like drones. Uh, DJI is by far the global market share leader in drones, 70 to 80% of drones that are imported to the United States are DJI, Chinese-made drones. Uh, the United States also relies on China in other ways for components of technology. So whether that's processed raw earth materials that are used in electronics, uh, polysilicon for solar panels. And then you can step out a little bit from the finished technology and the components and start thinking about other kinds of inputs like people. So STEM students, researchers, and professionals at the high end The United States gets a lot of those folks from China. And at the monetary level, there's quite a bit of cross-investment between the two countries. Um, So I'm focusing here just for a moment on U.S. reliance on China rather than Chinese reliance on the U.S., but you could basically do the same thing in that direction. Uh, We know, for example, that China relies heavily on semiconductors whose supply chain ultimately originates at many key points in the United States. Uh, So it's fair to say that... uh, Prior to this initial uh, wave of decoupling that began a few years ago, uh, there was a very, very deep and profound economic and technological integration between the two countries. 
Right. And with that as the state of play, essentially, how is that state changing right this minute? Who are the main players, the main arguments, the main tools being used to, to change the status quo? So the trend really started to reverse itself. You could date it at different times, but maybe late Obama administration, early Trump administration, a gradual movement toward what you could call a partial technological decoupling that's still underway. Um, and my point of view is it was really the U.S. government that initiated this uh, based on changing views of China. Um, so views of China became much darker, um, more concerning with Chinese behavior in the world and at home. Um, and also changing views on technology, uh, rising techno-nationalism around the world that finally took hold in the United States. Uh, so what this did is it laid the intellectual and political groundwork for a vast expansion and buildup of what I call uh, technology restrictions that the U.S. government has targeted to China. Um, so this would include export controls, right? So many of your viewers or listeners will be familiar with the entity list. It's one of the most uh, prominent forms of export control. Uh, my report shows that the number of Chinese companies on the entity list has actually quadrupled in four years. So that means those are all companies that need a license to procure, import, re-import any U.S. origin material and some other materials as well. Um, we've also had uh, what you might think of as import controls, um, including things like the tariffs. So Trump's trade war on China affected many, many different kinds of electronic goods, um, not necessarily your iPhones or your Apple watches, but certain forms of um, displays, components. Um, there have been a large number of new investment controls put in place. Uh, so CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, has really redoubled both its jurisdiction and its focus on China-oriented investments in sensitive U.S. areas. At the same time, we've also created new forms of outbound investment controls. Um, one of these has the unwieldy acronym that only someone in Washington could love, but I'll just call it the non-SDN CMIC list. And this is a list of about 70 Chinese companies that Americans cannot invest in anymore, including some of China's most prominent tech companies. Uh, and you can go on down the line into many other things the United States government has done in the realm of licensing, um, no longer providing licenses for Chinese telecoms companies to operate in the United States or for Chinese companies to build undersea cables that link to the United States. Uh, visas, we are we already talked about. And the Trump administration has uh, put in place something the Biden administration has kept, uh, preventing visas for uh, graduate students from China that have some kind of nebulous affiliation with what's called military civil fusion, uh, the People's Liberation Army's effort to um, draw technology and uh, dual use technology into the military. Um, and you could go on and on through sanctions, technology transaction rules. Um, federal government procurement and spending rules, such as the remove and replace rule that basically encourages U.S. telecoms to rip out any Huawei or ZTE equipment they might have, and law enforcement actions like the China Initiative, which has now sunset, but uh, in spirit lives on, a broad Department of Justice and FBI effort to crack down on Chinese industrial espionage, national security espionage, subversion, and many other threats. Um, so I'm pointing out the many ways in which the U.S. government has pushed us toward a technological decoupling, and some of these are actually still building. Uh, so I mentioned outbound investment controls. Um, there is discussion underway in Washington right now to significantly expand these. 
but I do want to say that this is not just a U.S. government affair. Uh, the Chinese government, of course, plays in this domain. It's watching what the U.S. government does, and it's been cautiously and at times reciprocally reacting. Um, so just in the last few days, China's new export control regime has come into effect for the first time. So it's watching what we do. It's retaliating. It's reciprocating. Um, and of course, there's many other actions by the global private sector and investment community. Um, the loss of interest in uh, cross-border deals or worries of things that could be affected by regulation in the future. Uh, of course, the regulatory environment in China is always unpredictable and increasingly hostile to the tech sector in all forms. Um, so there's the Chinese government, there's the US government, there's the global private sector, and then there's other third governments uh, that are participating in some of these decoupling actions as well. And I know you break break the the kind of views up into three different camps. You have the cooperationists, the sort of moderates, and then the the more severe China hawks on the other side. I know you kind of view the cooperationists as kind of a, a facet of the Obama administration and, and somewhat in the past, but could you kind of run through those those different camps of thought? Yeah, absolutely. And the basic idea here is we all see this partial technological decoupling happening, but no one knows exactly how far it's going to go. And there's a big debate in Washington about how far the U.S. government should try to push it. So I break down this debate into three camps, and you already mentioned one, uh, what I call the cooperationists. And this was previously the dominant camp. Um, cooperationists might include, for example, an alliance between traditionally the business community, major tech companies, corporations, and also um, more uh, internet kind of pioneers and activists who ideologically or philosophically believe in the open flow of information and markets. Um, and so what happened, just as an example of cooperationist activity, is during the early Trump administration, there were lots of statements put out by groups like the World Wide Web Foundation or the Internet Society that were you know, co-signed by companies like Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft. And they're basically saying, you know, we're not in favor of techno-protectionist initiatives. The overall ethos is that technology cooperation globally is essential to worldwide prosperity, progress, peace. Um, so this is the kind of techno-globalist mindset. And I do put it to some degree in the past because I think it's lost a lot of political relevance and constituency. So where does that then leave us? That leaves us in a debate between what I would argue are the two dominant camps today. Um, one is the opposite end of the spectrum. I call these the restrictionists. Uh, restrictionists include some in the national security community, some in the human rights community, um, some who are China hawks. So the kind of arcs restrictionist in the political arena might be someone like Senator Tom Cotton, who put out a big report arguing for things like revoking permanent normal trade relations with China, um, imposing a death sentence on all of China's technological national champions with hard sanctions, um, imposing sweeping export controls to basically deny China access to chips or advanced chips. Um, so this group of people tends to believe that technological integration or interdependence with China is a game that China wins and the United States loses. Meaning China can use this relationship to uh, reap long-term strategic advantages by hollowing out US industries that it would replace with its own, um, uh, stealing our intellectual property and putting the pieces in place for even scarier things like uh, sabotage in a national security crisis. 
Um, so the restrictionists advocate for um, much stronger export controls, outbound investment screenings and the like. Uh, so what then is the middle way between these two poles? This is what I call the centrists. And I've set it up in a nice Goldilocks where the centrists are the middle one. And so of course I'm a centrist. Uh, centrists include lots of technocrats at DC think tanks, uh, moderate political figures like Senator Chris Coons. Um, basically the centrists think, well, it's all actually rather complicated and uncertain. And in fact, the US-China technology relationship is not as simple as just one side wins and one side loses. It's also not as simple as it's a win-win. There's mixed costs and benefits for both sides and there's zero sum elements and non-zero sum elements. And so ultimately the, the centrists believe that this partial decoupling is probably getting us on the right track, but we need to view each new restriction very carefully, very selectively, using focused cost-benefit analysis, that new restrictions should be narrow, um, strongly justified, and that they should also be coordinated multilaterally with US allies and complemented by large investments in the US and uh, America's own technological strength and resilience. So those are essentially the three camps right now. And in the Biden administration and in Congress, it's really a debate between the centrists and the restrictionists. And so then what are the different ways you can sort of envision the decoupling efforts we're seeing playing out? Essentially, what does it look like if the center's view wins out versus what it looks like if the more hard line China Hawk view wins out? Yeah, you can kind of think of this again in three buckets. Um, so maybe the bucket that's easiest to understand, although in some ways perhaps least likely, is something close to the status quo where the United States and China and all the other countries and players involved in this ongoing policy conversation uh, come to some kind of equilibrium of you know, managed globalization, managed technological interdependence, where we maintain most of the links that I described in terms of people, money, technological goods, services, and data. Uh, but in select areas, there are walls put up. Um, and if we go down that route, then that would probably um, be the closest to what we have now in terms of you know, somewhat stable, although at times uncomfortable, economic jostling and relations between the two countries and other third countries that are involved. Um, and maybe this would help somewhat lubricate the overall U.S.-China diplomatic uh, military uh, otherwise type of global relationship. Um, it's also possible that the second scenario then would be um, more of a technological and larger economic decoupling to where the global economy, particularly in the realm of technology, kind of fractures into not necessarily distinct technological spheres, but kind of concentric circles. Um, so that the United States and, might seek to shift a lot of its technological trade and investment toward countries that are so-called like-minded countries, other advanced democracies or countries that are military allies of the United States. So you could call this nearshoring or friendshoring in the phrase of Janet Yellen. Um, and so then the sensitive activities would be kept within this circle and then maybe less sensitive activities could be kept in a butter circle. And then the least sensitive technologies, you could then engage with China and other um, 
somewhat adverse countries. Um, this is, you know, maybe one of the more likely scenarios lots of countries are thinking along these lines. Um, and then the final scenario is really more of a split, a kind of development of distinct and kind of sealed geotechnological blocks where you have essentially a US-led technology world and maybe economy. And then on the other hand, a Chinese-led technological sphere with all of the technological components of that. And there could ultimately be very little engagement between the two. Now, an example of this would be, for, uh, for example, if the United States and China decide that they really don't want any significant amounts of personal data, financial data, or technical data moving between the two sides just because dis distrust is so high. Well, if that's the case, it's very difficult to envision a productive technological relationship, let alone a larger economic relationship. And so I think where we stand today, Ian, is that all three of those possibilities uh, are actually open to us right now. We don't know which one we're going to be walking down in the coming years and decades. And which do you think is most likely? I think probably the most likely scenario would be that middle one of kind of concentric circles, technology alliances. It's hard to picture exactly what that looks like because the conversations about these are so emergent and it's unclear which countries would be a part of which alliance for which technology. Um, but if that's the world that we're going to, then the key question would be, is that actually a stable equilibrium or do the, uh, does the fracture that's implied by that and the tensions between the West and China naturally and ineluctably lead toward um, more of a Cold War split technological spheres? Um, so that'll be the question going forward. So while the report runs through a range of policy options, a lot of them are focused on national security priorities, but you also have two economic policy arguments. So could you kind of dig into those two arguments that you're making around economic focus policy? Well, the first thing the U.S. government needs to do is to clearly distinguish between two things which are, in fact, different. Uh, one of those things is um, having a fairer technology trade relationship with China in which we thwart or stop China's unfair economic practices. And the other is where the United States actually competes and leads and wins in the technologically strategic industries of the future. And I just think the most important mental move that policymakers in Washington can make is to actually identify these two things as different. Yes, it is true that China's numerous unfair economic practices, including IP theft, regulatory and licensing discrimination, the requirement that we've had in place about joint ventures and all the rest. Um, all of that is a big part of China's technological success story, but it's not the only part. Uh, China also has just done a lot of things right. Um, it's invested in its technical education system. It's created a successful innovation ecosystem. It's mastered things like manufacturing and supply chain integration, and to the point where it can do things we just can't do in the United States. And so if China were to actually stop all of its unfair economic practices today, my argument is it would still represent the greatest competitive threat to the United States since Japan in the 1980s. Now, we all know that with the benefit of hindsight, that Japanese threat actually faded to a great degree. And many people argue that we reacted too strongly with the techno-nationalism of the 80s and the 90s. 
Uh, we don't yet know whether that's going to happen with China or not, whether the competitive threat will fade away or whether it will remain just as robust and in fact, more robust than it is today. Um, but I think the first thing that we need to do is differentiate between those two things. Um, then when we get into competing and leading in strategic industries, you know, it's really important to draw lines between industries that truly are strategic in which the full weight of the US government really needs to be brought to bear to protect US industries and make sure we have a kind of economic security in the future uh, versus those industries that I don't want to call them ancillary, but at the very least, they um, will remain competitive and not have any one country or company establish enduring dominance. So an example of a strategic industry would be 5G telecommunications equipment. Um, during the Trump administration, there was great, great concern that Huawei and ZTE were essentially executing a strategy to give China a global dominance through for much of the world's telecommunications for years to come. Uh, this really was a problem. And what Washington did was they threw the book at both of these companies. And in return, they shifted some behavior of countries buying patterns and they bought some time for open architectures like ORAN to develop as an alternative to Chinese dominance. But not everything is such a clear cut case where we need to implement such harsh and unique restrictive measures. Uh, there's a debate inside the Biden administration right now about whether some of these same restrictive measures like the entity list should extend to honor, um, which was formerly a smartphone, divi smartphone division of Huawei and is now being spun off or has been spun off. Now, a lot of people think that we need to throw the book at honor simply because it was formerly a part of Huawei. But I would argue that smartphones simply are not the same kind of strategic industry or strategic economic threat that 5G telecommunications equipment is. Uh, smartphones don't have the kind of defensible moats. Um, you don't buy one smartphone and then have it dominate your country for a decade or more. Um, and what we actually see is kind of granular, smooth changes in market share and technological competitiveness of different smartphone uh, makers and manufacturers over time. And my argument is we're reaching a point in the global economy and this technological decoupling where it's increasingly in Washington's interest to come out with an explicit strategy where it says, here's where we want decoupling, here's where we don't. And to articulate a constructive and realistic vision for what technology relationship the United States actually wants to have with China in the future. If we can do that in the United States, then it makes it more likely that Beijing and the global private sector and many other actors can attach onto these expectations and prevent us from just sliding into the abyss. The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S. China Business Council, and it is also a companion to a digital magazine of the same name. You can always read more articles about the U.S.-China economic and business relationship at ChinaBusinessReview.com. And if you want to learn more about the U.S.-China Business Council itself, you can learn more on our website, uschina.org. If you do like the show, please leave a rating and a review. It always helps other people to find it. And as always, thank you very much for listening, and we will be back soon.